0: Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk or Habakkuk. I think I usually say Habakkuk. I think that's what I say. Um, Open there. The very end of the Old Testament. So we are coming down to the home stretch after today. We will have Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, four books remaining in the Old Testament. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been going book by book. One sermon, for every uh, book, I guess sometimes two sermons uh, for a book. Today we have one, and today we are in the book of Habakkuk, which uh, we already read from together, but I want to read that um, again to give us the sense of this book, the theme verse of Habakkuk from verse chapter 3, uh, verses 17 and 18, before we pray. I'm reading from Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is a truth that all of us so badly need to hear this morning. Uh, Maybe somebody here feels as though there is nothing good happening uh, in their life or in the world. There is no fig on the vine. There's no produce, no food in the field. Everywhere around them is desolation. And yet we have these words of resolve, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Father, I pray that we would come to see this morning that there really is nothing worth hoping in if our hope is not in you. I pray that by your word, you would cause us to believe that truth with all of our hearts. I pray that your spirit would open up our minds this morning to behold the wonder- wonderful, wondrous, things that you have prepared for us here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what what would you do if you found out or you were given news um, even today? Uh, You learned that Omaha was about to be bombed, was about to be destroyed, Um, everywhere around you, schools, this church building, uh, your place of work would be destroyed. You would never go to any of these places again. And then shortly after that, an army would come in and they would take you captive and they would bring you off to their own country. Some of your closest friends, some people who are sitting here today would not survive. Members, many members of your family, would not survive. Some of your children might not survive. And for the remainder of your life, so this is what you have to look forward to, for the rest of your life, you no longer are able to do anything that you want to do. No more birthdays, no more graduations, no more anniversaries to celebrate, no more retirement to look forward to, no more possibility of ever living in the dream home that you've been thinking about for so long, all of that is gone. Nothing left in that sense to look forward to. Where would you put your hope then? What would you do? Where would you turn in that circumstance? Really, this is the story of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is prophesying to his own people, He has a burden that he is going to share with his own people just before the time when the evil empire, the big mighty empire of Babylon, is going to come in and is going to ravage their city, destroy their temple, take them off into captivity, and they would no longer be able to live their lives as they had hoped to do at one point in time. You see this from the very beginning in verse One, it says this is the oracle, or that word actually uh, carries the sense of burden. This is the burden that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. That is to say that he is receiving a vision from the Lord, and it is something that is weighing very heavy on his heart. You know when you have something so heavy on your heart that you have to tell somebody, you have to communicate it, or else it is going to destroy you inside... This is the burden that Habakkuk was carrying after the Lord showed him what was about to happen to his people. And this book is one that is really going to confront you with that question. Where is your hope? Really, where is your hope today? The book is divided into three parts. Just to give you a really quick outline this morning, you can think of it in three parts. Uh, The first two parts are dialogues going on between habakkuk and god and by dialogue i mean habakkuk is going to complain about the situation before him and then god is going to respond with an answer so habakkuk complains god answers habakkuk complains about his answer and then god answers him again and then the third part it concludes with what we just part of what we just read here it concludes with this prayerful reflection by Habakkuk that was intended to be set to music. So this last part is a prayer by Habakkuk that his people would be able to sing all throughout their time in captivity and all throughout their history, even to this day, a song that we can sing and draw strength from. Now, when I say Habakkuk complains, uh, I don't want you to think so much as like a toddler complaining about eating his vegetables. This is more of Habakkuk making very serious stated grievances against God. God, what in the world are you doing right now? Where are you? We see the beginning of his complaint in verse two of chapter one. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk's first complaint in verses 1 through 4 is actually not a complaint against being surrounded by Babylon. At this point, he's complaining about the wickedness that is surrounding him by his own people. We know this because in verse 4, he actually refers to the law or the Torah, which means he's referring to the fact that his own people have rejected the law of, uh, the law of God. So he's asking, God, why are my fellow countrymen, my fellow people, your people, why are they so wicked? And why aren't you doing anything about it? Did any of you here feel that way about the state of things in the world? Uh, Headlines that you read on the news or things you even hear are coming out of the church. Do you wonder why is God allowing things to be this way? So much wickedness to go on. Habakkuk says destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise Doesn't sound too much unlike situations today. He says "So the law is paralyzed. The law law is basically doing nothing, and justice never goes forth. He means that people are essentially going on as if there is no regard for God's word. They have completely cast off God's word as having any bearing on the way that they live. And because of that, there is now injustice running rampant throughout their society. So he finds himself, somebody wanting to be a godly man, wanting to do God's word, but he finds himself in a quote-unquote godly society, yet one where no one cares about God. No one acknowledges God and his word, and it's driving Habakkuk absolutely mad. Has anyone here been driven bonkers recently by things that are going on around them? The wicked, he says, surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. I think there are so many parallels just right off the bat to the way that a church in our society, a church that would dare strive after holiness, dare strive to faithfully obey the word of God, how a church like that might feel as the minority in this culture. Even worse, I would say that the church is quickly becoming, the church that is trying to be faithful is quickly becoming the progress-stopping ignorant, bigoted fundamentalists of our time. At least that's what some are saying about those who are trying to remain faithful. Everywhere around us, we can see examples of wrong being championed as right and right being championed as wrong. And I think often we want to cry out to God, Please do something about this. That's Habakkuk's first complaint. And as we are going to see, God is going to answer Habakkuk. God's going to give Habakkuk an answer, only it is not the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. You can imagine what Habakkuk was probably thinking in his mind God, either just make everyone who's wicked, make them righteous again, make them turn, let there be a revival in the land, or maybe purge some of the evil so that we can all get back to worshiping you as we would like to do and and, and understand that this is a nation that truly serves you. That's probably what Habakkuk is after here. But here's what God says. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Look among the nations and see, Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God says, I am working. I have not gone silent. I am doing a work right now, Habakkuk. But you wouldn't believe it even if I told you. Now, he's going to tell them, but he's saying, it's not what you want to hear. Now, now just stop here for a minute. Do you notice what's going on? Habakkuk's complaint to God is first, God, why aren't you doing anything? Where are you? And the first thing that God says back to him is, Habakkuk, I am doing a work in your days. Oftentimes we feel as though God is not working because things are not working out the way that we had imagined that they should. And let me just assure you this morning, and and we see evidence of this all throughout Scripture, just because it may feel to you in your very limited scope, your limited ability to see things, when the God of the universe can see everything happening around you, just though it may feel to you as if God is idle in various seasons of your life, does not mean that God is idle. Often when we think that God is doing nothing or God is doing a couple of things, he's doing 10,000 things that we have no idea about. So in your where are you God moments in life, know this. God is working. God is not surprised by what's going on around you. God is working. I think oftentimes the reason that we can't discern all the ways that he's working around us is because we have so decided in our minds the way things should be if God is working. And when we don't see the visible evidence around us, it's easy for us to say, he must not be working. And I think that's why God says to Habakkuk, I'm doing a work in your days that if told, you wouldn't believe because it doesn't fit within the way you think that I am to act. But really, God is going to reveal to Habakkuk that he is uh, the work that he is doing. And I think that's only going to prove to Habakkuk just how far beyond us God's ways are. We know this from Isaiah. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He, He is so much higher than us that often we can't begin to fathom all the ways and the things that he's doing. So what is God doing? He says to Habakkuk, Behold, I am raising up. This is verse 6. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's another word for the Babylonians, people of Babylon. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from their self. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God says to Habakkuk, I'm working. In fact, I'm raising up a nation that is more fierce than anything you've ever known that is going to come in and devour you and destroy this land as a way of purging that wickedness from this land that is so bothering you. I am going to bring an end to the evil that is surrounding you in Judah, just as you desired, Habakkuk, just as you prayed, only it's not going to be in the way that you would wish. So what does Habakkuk do? In the second dialogue between Habakkuk and God, now Habakkuk has to shift his complaint. (laughs) First, he's asking for God to do something about the wickedness around him, and God says, I am. So Habakkuk says, well, God, actually, I wanted you to do it differently. So let me tell you why you're wrong. No longer does he desire God to act upon the wickedness of his people, but now he complains to God about the choice of his solution to the problem. Now he takes issue with the way that God is going to do it. God, why, why? Honestly, why would you allow a nation like Babylon? Do you know how evil Babylon is? Do you know how much they, how little they care about your word? Why would you allow them? Why would you raise them up as the people that you've chosen to drive away our own people who at the very least we can say are not nearly as bad as Babylon. In a way, it's kind of like the comparative syndrome where we might say today, well, you know, I may sin, I may mess up from time to time, but at least I'm not a murderer. How can you let them get away with that? We are at least a lot better than Babylon. In chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, here's the way that Habakkuk says it. Are you not from everlasting? As if to say, like, You know you have the power to do something. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, notice this question again. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. It's actually very similar to the same question he asked back in verse 3. Why do you idly look at wrong? Why do you idly look at the traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up? And he goes on to tell God, as, as if God like, doesn't know, what he's doing, he goes on to tell God just how terrible and awful these Chaldeans are, so God would know just how big a mistake he might be making. He says, is is Babylon to go on emptying his net, so he just gathers people up in his net, to go on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? That's verse 17. If you let Babylon do this, they're going to they're think of themselves so much more proudly that they'll just go on committing evil and, and there will be no end to what they can do, no end to the violence. Now, I have to admit that in trying to make like, application to us in the everyday today, I tried really hard to imagine myself what it must have been like for me to be in the shoes of Judah. Judah. Imagine this, like, afflicted from within by your own people, and now you're about to be destroyed from without by this external enemy. I don't think it's really possible for us to get to a place where we can really put ourselves in Judah's shoes today. Generally speaking, we live relative lives of ease and comfort. I mean, even in our worst days, we we generally still have food to eat, and we still have a home that we can go to, and and many of us still drive cars and have access to all the amenities all around us. Imagine what it must have been like to know that you could spend the rest of your life being oppressed, enslaved, and abused by a foreign nation. Basically, we're talking about one continuous period of suffering— until you die. Like you're going to suffer for about 70 years, and I mean, this generation is not going to return to see the land and to see God's restored promise. That's it. You're going to go off to Babylon, you're going to be enslaved, and then you're going to die. I think we often think of hope in this life. We think in terms of, of when this thing is finished, then I will get to enjoy, fill in the blank. When I finish this really hard task at work, then I will be able to uh, enjoy a vacation with my family. When I finish this really rigorous qualification, then people will recognize me and I will have respect for my coworkers. When my kids get old enough, and this is something I'm really struggling with now, I will actually be able to be free from the responsibility of parenting and Eric and I will have long walks along the beach and it will be glorious. Are you hoping for that day? <laughs> Marsha reminds me often, like, these are the, these are the best days. Someday you're going to miss them very much. But I can tell you, it's hard. It's hard to hope beyond that. But maybe it's just a, an extremely challenging, time-consuming season that you're facing at work right now. And you're wondering, maybe, is this ever going to end? But at least you have a sense that it will come to an end. And finally, you can enjoy life again. Or even on a weekly basis. Think about this. How many of you on a Monday or Tuesday can't wait for Friday to come? Because Friday means something. It means that you don't have to work again, maybe, for some of you. We have this idea that there is something good awaiting us on the weekend, we have this idea, many of us, that there is such a thing as when this all passes, life will be better. And we might say, that's what, keeps us, that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us putting one foot in front of the other. That's what gives us a measure of hope. So again, imagine, knowing that none of that exists. All that is gone. For the rest of your life, you will have no say over what you will do. But then for Habakkuk, it's even worse. It's worse because it's not just about entering a prolonged season of suffering. But it's at the hands of a people that God has raised up that are completely evil. And so he's saying, you're going to let the bad guys win? You're going to let us experience all this suffering at their hands? God, don't you know that if the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are the victors If they have all the might, if we are the weak victims in this situation, doesn't that mean you've chosen them over your chosen people? How can you let the bad guys win? How could you turn your backs on us in favor of this evil empire? And this, I will admit, feels very hard to relate to as well. I don't know about you, but I have, a tr- I have trouble like being envious, like if I think about it in this sense, of evil people winning. I, I just don't find myself generally prone to being envious over evil people. Like for example, I was talking about this with the guys on, on Tuesday, uh, having a little fellowship with, with some tacos on Tuesday. And just like, does anyone struggle with being envious over bad guys? And, and I was like, like, think about Vladimir Putin. Like I don't want to be like Vladimir Putin. He seems like a pretty miserable guy and he seems like he has a lot of anxiety going on. And I just, I I don't think I have that problem. And then I think uh, Jason said, he's like, well, okay, but imagine that you're living in that that country. You're living in Ukraine and uh, you know, the Russian army comes and they just wipe out your family and you have nothing left. You're just sitting there in the dust. You have nothing left. And you look up and you see a TV on and there's Putin like sipping a glass of wine. It's like, I think you would be a little bit uh, upset, maybe not envious in that sense, but you would say, why are we facing this? And he's experiencing that. But maybe something more relatable for you this morning. Are there people whose circumstances right now, are there people whose circumstances in life seem to you to be better than theirs, uh, seem to you to be better than your own, and you're jealous, maybe that they have more money, Maybe they have a nicer house. Maybe it seems to you like they have more freedom and more flexibility. Maybe they have more leisure time. Maybe they have a less stressful job. And yet they are the furthest thing from godly. They are, furthest, they are the furthest thing away from those who should be rewarded in any way. By God, and you're wondering, God, why, haven't, why aren't the tables turned? Why aren't you rewarding me for the sacrifices I make and all the ways that I serve you, all the ways that I serve your people and your church? And maybe those people even hate God. Maybe they are hostile towards your beliefs. Maybe they mock you for your silly beliefs, and you feel like you're getting behind because of the sacrifices that you're making. I think it's easy to become resentful. And, wor- and resentful and develop a very near-sighted view of what justice looks like when we compare our immediate circumstances to the very temporary circumstances of others that we see around us. If what I see, based on the material results, based on the things that I can see around me that I would say are good, and temporary prosperity, if, if what I see has the score in favor of the ungodly, then how can that be fair? How can God be just? Well, just as quickly as Habakkuk goes down this line of thinking, however, God assures him, no Habakkuk, Babylon is not going to get off the hook. They are going to be dealt with justly for their sins, just like I'm dealing with Judah now. And so we see this response from God this time, it's a series of woes, curses, against Babylon, things that are going to happen to Babylon in the end, God gives him a picture of their demise. If you look at chapter two, beginning in verse nine, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. So it may look like they're winning, but they've already forfeited their life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city upon iniquity. It says in verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. This basically means show that you do not belong to God. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Evil never pays in the end. The abandonment of God's truth never pays in the end. They will get their justice. But where does this leave Habakkuk? I mean, is that good enough? Okay, so Habakkuk, or so Babylon is going to be judged. They are going to be destroyed too. Okay, everything is good. Now I can spend the, the rest of those 70 years suffering in captivity and, and all is well because I know that Babylon is going to get destroyed in the end. Does that, does that really change your outlook on things? Does it help you to know that? I would say certainly not, but, but it is part of the answer. It is part of the answer because Habakkuk does need to be reminded, first of all, that God is just. To know that God is going to judge Babylon is to say that, okay, then even in what he's doing now, he is just. So he is being true to his character. He's upholding who he said he would be. And and so I can have confidence that God will remain true to all of his revealed character, that he is merciful that he is gracious, that he is just, he's abounding in steadfast love. He will by no means clear the guilty, but he is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And I think it's also a reminder in times like this, when you may be tempted to be jealous over somebody who is, has abandoned God. And it looks, it looks like they're winning in life. You know, if you, if you can't beat them, join them, It's a good reminder for Habakkuk and all of us that it's always a fool's errand to abandon God's truth in favor of worldly gain. What did Jesus say? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You realize what a paltry trade-off that is? (laughs) We want to gain the whole world. We're willing to forfeit our soul as long as we can gain the whole world. That's nothing. It amounts to nothing if you forfeit your soul in the process. But more than anything, what I think this forces Habakkuk to do is to consider, Habakkuk, where are you placing your ultimate hope? Do you really trust that God is who he says he is, that he's able to take care of you, that he's able to save you from the greatest trouble and disaster? Think about this for a second. Ask yourself this question. Is your God trustworthy only if he works things out according to directly observable benefits for you? Is he only trustworthy if he comes through for you in the way that you want him to? In other words, you pray to God that you would get the new job and God says no. Has he lost credibility in your eyes? Or God, let's say you pray for three years for a relative to be healed of cancer and God instead instead says, no, I'm taking his life. I'm taking her life. Has he lost credibility? Has he lost your trust in that moment? Did God ever promise you those things? Did God ever promise you that job? Did did God ever promise to to give you children? Did God ever promise that, that that person who had cancer would live forever? Now, I'll admit, these are heart-wrenching moments. This was a heart-wrenching time for the people of Judah. Moments of grief and pain, and that that doesn't go away in those moments. But often what these things do, how God uses them, is he uses them to reveal to us that our faith is not so much in God, but that it's really in the thing that, that God would do the thing that I want him to do most. And in moments like that, it really forces you to take inventory. Am I hoping in God or am I hoping in the thing? This is one way to know if God is more like a cosmic vending machine for you, as one author put it. The idea that you put worship in, you go to church, you, you, you give, you know, you do good deeds, you're, you're charitable, and you expect to get good things out, good things that you want. And when you don't get them, what do you do? You kick the machine A few times, didn't mean to actually kick it. Good, good effect, good dramatic effect. You kick the machine a few times, you put up a sign that says, Do not use this machine, out of order, it's not worth coming back to ever again. Or is God worship worthy? Is he worthy of your worship? Because it's God Himself that you want more than anything else. Do you want the thing that you're hoping God will give you? Or do you want the God who is the giver of all good things? And I think this gets to the heart of that billion dollar word in the Bible that we call faith. What is faith? Is faith hoping that God will give you whatever you want, whenever you want? Or is faith holding fast to God himself when you see no materially good outcome anywhere in sight? Time and time again, we're presented in Scripture with definitions of faith that are about trusting in what we cannot see with our own eyes. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. 2 Corinthians 4.18 so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What do all these passages tell us about faith in God? They tell us that faith is all about trusting God because He is God, even when it may look to us like nothing good is happening anywhere around us. Remember His words. Habakkuk, I am doing a work in your day that if told, you would not believe. Now Habakkuk says in chapter 2, verse 4, and this is one of the most famous verses, certainly in Habakkuk. It shows up famously again as we'll look at in the New Testament as well. He says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, Babylon, it is not upright within him, but... The righteous shall live by his faith. I want you to hear that very clear this morning. How is it that we are going to find life in the midst of circumstances that we cannot possibly get through in the moment or wrap our minds around how they could ever be good? The righteous shall live by his faith. It doesn't say the righteous shall live Based on whether or not things work out in his favor. The righteous shall live not by gaining enough wealth and power so that they're invincible and nothing can stop them. The righteous shall not live by doing a bunch of really good deeds to, to earn God's favor back for doing all the bad deeds. It says, the righteous shall live by his faith, by his trust in God himself. In other words, the only path of life for any of us, the only path of life is through faith in God. No matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to anyone else around you, the way of life is continuing to hope in God himself. The Bible says those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. Do you want to know, I can guarantee you this morning, if you never want to be put to shame in your life, you never want to be put to shame, here's what you need to do. Trust in the Lord. But what about when this happened? No, no. trust in the Lord. But, but how am I going to get through? No, today, trust in the Lord. That's the principle. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now here then is Habakkuk's concluding reflection. His prayer, when he thinks about it for a while, his prayer of reflection in view of so much that he still doesn't quite understand by what he sees. Listen to this in chapter 3, verse 16. This is very raw. He says, of the moment, of the moment in their people's history, I hear and my body trembles. Have you ever known something was coming down the pike and you were just scared to death to face it? Habakkuk was no superhero. He was no different than us. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And here's our verse for the month. Though the fig tree should not blossom. All right, I'm sorry. Yet, back up to verse 16. Yet. Yet. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, notice the object here of his faith. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now, is this delusional? Is it delusional for Habakkuk to look all around him and see devastation and say, Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Is this some kind of like Jedi mind trick, just to psych himself up to get through this? No. The key point that Habakkuk makes here that all of us need to take is that despite all of the barrenness, the desolation, the trouble, the futility around him, in the end, he resolves to trust in the only one who is able to bring life and strength to the soul. Not to the physical body, but to the soul. I would say that if you are banking in this life, that you are finally going to get to a place where you can enjoy some kind of endless leisure because of endless wealth. Whenever you get to that point where your life and your strength, where I should say, when you get to that point, where is your source of life and your source of strength for your soul going to come from? Does it matter the the troubling circumstances or the good circumstances? Where is your life and strength for your soul going to come from? There have been several stories about people who reach reached that position, endless wealth, endless leisure, and they take their own lives because they have no comfort for their soul. The thing is, when it comes down to it, all of us are hoping in something, right? We're all hoping in something, a better outcome, more money, restoration of our health, But all of these are either inanimate, non-living things or concepts or ideals, dreams. None of them certainly have within themselves life-giving power. In fact, Habakkuk makes this point in chapter 2. He says in verse 18, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? An idol, by the way, is anything we fashion that we worship as God, anything we make into a god. A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is still, there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What Habakkuk is saying is there is only one who offers us the power of life, no matter the circumstance. God, the Lord, he says, is my strength. So I said that this this famous verse, the, just shall, the righteous shall live by faith. It gets quoted again in the New Testament. And it's, and it's in a very famous passage in Romans chapter 1. And Paul says, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Habakkuk knew and what Habakkuk came to learn through very painful experience is that God is too pure to be able to overlook Babylon's sin, He's too pure to be able to overlook Judah's sin. He's also too pure to be able to overlook Habakkuk's sin, your sin, and my sin. He's too holy for that. And so God is going to have to provide a way of salvation that Habakkuk in no way can even fathom. He wouldn't believe if God told him in the moment about how this was going to work. But he does say this, In chapter 3, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. Do, Do your work. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, in your wrath it's coming, in wrath, remember mercy. I love this prayer of Habakkuk. All the bad stuff is coming all around him. God, okay, I get it. Do your work, but please, Lord, in your justice, in your wrath, remember mercy. Though the fig tree have no bud, though there be no food in the field, still I will plead, God, show us mercy. What is Habakkuk saying in that moment? He's saying, The righteous shall live by his faith. Who are the righteous? Everyone who looks to God for mercy. And for salvation. Those who trust in the Lord for forgiveness and trust that his word will always prove true in the end. The Apostle Paul also says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin. And, death. and he says just a few verses later, and imagine everything happening in Habakkuk's day, all the trouble around it. Imagine this, hearing this. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor ang- neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation... And you can fill in the blank with whatever circumstance, troubling circumstance you can imagine. Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So at the beginning of this sermon, I asked you, if you were to receive the news that Habakkuk received today, that basically everything you've been looking forward to was stripped away, you no longer had anything to look forward to that you were, nothing that you were living for that you once were, where would you turn? Where would your hope be? What Habakkuk came to find out, albeit through painful experience and much anguish, is that the only way of life is by trusting in God himself. Not the thing, not the outcome, but God himself. God himself, the Lord, he says, is his salvation, and strength. Habakkuk held on to the, con- the, the conviction that God could save a sinner and a sinful people even like him and Judah and we are blessed today to know how that full story panned out. How it is that God could truly save Habakkuk, how it is that God could truly save all those who trusted in him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who took God's just wrath upon himself in our place the one whom the spirit of god raised from the dead so that if the spirit dwells in us we can enjoy that life forever so that we can say nothing can separate us ever from the love of god habakkuk teaches us that if everything should be taken away from us even then we're going to be okay isn't that a great is that a great truth isn't that a great promise Everything could be taken away from us tomorrow. Everything could be stripped from your life. It will be hard. It will be painful. It will be a time of anguish, but know this. You can say, well, I remember hearing on Sunday that I'd still be okay because that's what God tells me in his word, and God is faithful. Friends, I pray that all of you here today If you are trusting in something else, if you're trusting in an outcome, if you're trusting in a better tomorrow, I pray that you would turn your hope to God himself and find your joy and your salvation in him.